Welcome back to The Phone Booth. I'm your host, Joe Pollard. Before we begin part two of Crossroads, I would like to take a moment to thank our newest patrons. To Joshua Jorgensen, Kyle Dreyfus, Sharifa McCauley, thank you. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at www.patreon.com foolsgallery. We have a few amazing new rewards for our patrons, my favorite being exclusive access to a secret full-length episode of The Phone Booth. We understand that this is a financially trying time for all of us, so only give what you can. Previously on The Phone Booth, Archibald Turn revealed how the Crossroads Bar was formed, how he met the legendary performer known only as Georgia, and how copies of their nightly shows became a phenomenon in first city, then state, then country, then the world. Today, he concludes the story of Crossroads by explaining the relationship between the movement's two greatest performers. And now, join us as we step inside the phone booth for Crossroads, Part 2. kids came walking, flying, and teleporting through the streets, waiting outside our door with that all-too-familiar look in their eye. It was the look of having nowhere else to go. So I let them into the bar, and they would gasp and elbow their new friends as the show began. Look, there's Manny. He's even bigger than I imagined. Oh, here comes Doris. I wonder what's wrong now. I just talked to Sammy at the bar. He invited me upstairs for a drink. Shh, look. It's Georgia. They would part like the Red Sea as she walked through the bar, their eyes wide, asking for an autograph, a word of encouragement, or just simply to touch her. It changed the way I saw her, too. For years she had been my friend, but now she was a myth, a legend. These kids spoke about Georgia in the same tone I talked about Bird or Hendrix. I wanted to tell them that they were wrong. Georgia wasn't an icon, she was just a person, just like them. But then Georgia sang, and her voice made a case I couldn't argue against. Many were there just to see her perform, but many more were there to perform themselves. They had dreams of their own, and I was drowned in requests to audition. And I had never auditioned anyone before. Never had to. If you wanted to play at the bar, you just had to show up and be ready. But with the influx of hopefuls, things had to change. At least a little. I never felt comfortable passing judgment on a performer. Who was I to say you weren't good enough? The only people with the right to judge a performance was the audience. So I made Tuesday nights audition nights. The first 20 or so in line would get a chance to perform live to an audience in my bar. I thought it was a good idea, but I never realized how many there were. Kids started lining up on Saturday for a Tuesday night show. I had to set Manny on them, sent them scattering. But the moment he went back inside, they would be back in line, tuning their instruments, practicing harmonies. I eventually let them stay. TV hadn't come back yet, so the best advertisement a guy could hope for was a line that snaked around the block. But then Tuesday came, and we thought the kids might riot. They were jostling, shoving, and a few came to outright blows trying to get to the front of the line. Got so bad they got to see Manfred's power for the first time. He opened his mouth and let out a sound like a passing ship. It vibrated the entire city, cracking windows, bleeding ears but it got them under control. And then we let them in, one performer at a time. Most were shit, to be honest. Dreams bigger than their talent. But for every hundred that we sent home, there were a few standouts, 
and for every thousand, someone truly special. The first was Rosalind Rhea, a tiny 15-year-old Latino girl from El Paso who didn't understand her voice or her power. Man, that girl had a way of connecting every single audience member to one another. I always thought it was a shame she stopped playing to crowds. There were others, Carrie Hall, Vladimir Pulkov, the Minx. They each had their own style and their own careers, but you can look them up yourself. I can't spend time writing about them, because this is a long letter already, and I'm sure you want to hear about him. Yeah, that's right. We finally got to him. The boy who would challenge Georgia as my top man. The boy that changed Crossroads and music forever. Jeremiah Riles, the floating boy from Nova Scotia. When I first met Jerry, I thought he was nothing special. Just another Dylan-obsessed kid who couldn't sing. And I was right. He was all those things and less. First time he got on stage, he was shaking so bad he almost dropped his guitar. Couldn't look at the audience. Couldn't connect. Mumbled his way through a song he wrote himself. I sent him home that night with a better luck next time, kid. I've said that a thousand times. Most got discouraged and gave up. But not Jerry. Jerry was... Well, Jerry was different. I saw him leave the bar after his set on Tuesday night, walk three steps to the right and sit back down. The line would start behind him just a few days later. Kid lived on our sidewalk, sleeping in a moth-eaten sleeping bag, eating God knows what, playing his guitar. He played the next Tuesday, and the next, and the next. I gotta say, it would have been impressive if he wasn't so hopeless. One night, I'd had enough, and pulled Jerry aside. It was bumming me out seeing this kid bang his head against the wall every weekend. I knew it was only a matter of time before we saw Brain. I told him to let it be. It wasn't worth it. He didn't have what it took. And that was okay. Best go home, meet a girl, forget about music. You can be happy without music, I remember saying. For the first time since I'd known him, Jerry smiled. You ever figure out how to do that, he asked. I admitted I hadn't. Jerry asked for one more chance. Just one more. Let him leave everything out there on the stage, and then if it still didn't work, he would leave. He promised. I agreed, though I didn't feel great about it. Sometimes you just don't have the talent. Doesn't matter how hard you try. But I'm a real softy at heart. So I got back up on stage and announced for hopefully the last time, Jeremiah Riles. The crowd gave an audible groan. They came to Crossroads for real music. They came for Georgia or Manfred, not this mumbling mouse. But I gave them a hard look, and they quieted, allowing the shuffling, pimple-faced figure of Jerry on stage. His giant guitar hung off his back, and he stared stubbornly at the floor. I rolled my eyes. Little guy looked like he was going to cry. He stood there for a long moment, his mouth moving, but not making any sound. I sighed and moved towards the stage, thinking it was best to avoid a scene. But before I could grab him, Jerry raised one leg into the air. And then he raised the other. Then he crossed them and sat back. Only thing was, there was no stool beneath him. Kid was floating three feet off the ground. A murmur broke out through the bar. 
We had all seen flyers before, but not here in Crossroads. Kid was breaking one of the only rules that mattered. He was flaunting his powers, bringing the outside world in. A few hisses broke out, and Sammy Little called for him to get off the stage. But Jerry wasn't on the stage. He was floating above it, and it seemed like he had left all of his fears back on the ground. He raised his head. His pale blue eyes swept over the audience, telling them that he knew something they didn't, and if they listened... He just might tell them. Then, without ever breaking eye contact, Jerry began to play. He was a fine musician. His finger-picking could use some work, and you could barely call what he did singing. It was more like spoken verse with the little guitar accompaniment. But his voice was hypnotic and clear, and you could finally understand him. And his words? Well, his words were entirely his. Jeremiah Riles was the first to really write his own songs in Crossroads. Sure, Dory and Sammy wrote, but Dory wrote about herself, and Sammy wrote about what he would do to you in the bedroom. But what Jerry wrote about was different. Jerry wrote about everything. His words bounced off one another, combining and breaking apart into different shapes, different meanings. He sang about crossroads, his mother, sex, death, war, masturbation, self-hatred, self-love, me, Georgia, and of course, powers. Ever since B-Day, we treated powers as something foreign, something that was intruding upon our lives and wasn't welcome. But Jerry sang different. That first song was called Gravity. I bet you know it. It's all about how powers are a part of us. They're like gravity, and rejecting your power was like choosing to float away into nothing. Shit, when he said that, the room lost it. They were booing him, throwing peanuts and drinks, calling for him to get off the stage, spitting at him. As the music faded and the hatred mounted, Jerry sank closer and closer to the ground until finally it rose up to hit him in the ass. He sat there, confused. He really thought they would love him. He really did. He wanted them to love him. I think in the end, that's all Jerry ever wanted. But to the audience, he had betrayed the heart of the movement. He had put himself above the rest. He buckled up his guitar and slumped off stage. He thanked me for giving him one last chance and moved to leave Crossroads forever. But a voice called out to him, a voice that quieted all the jeers and taunts. Jerry turned to find Georgia sitting in a dark corner. She told Jerry to come back on Sunday. He could take her spot. The bar went silent, and all eyes turned to me. Could Georgia do that? Wasn't this my bar? Didn't I decide who goes up and who doesn't? But they didn't understand. I wasn't even the owner. I was just a guy who had been squatting in the same room for the past three years and somehow tricked geniuses to perform music around him. In the end... What did I know about music or art? In the end, who was I to disagree with Georgia? So I nodded. Georgia smiled, and so did Jerry. And then he left. That Sunday, Jerry returned and played in Georgia's spot. Once again, he sang something you wrote. This one was called Passover, and was about rejecting the faith you were born into for a faith you chose. It was a funny little piece. Had a great circumcision joke in the bridge, but like most of Jerry's songs, it ended with a gut punch of emotion. But when the faith you found becomes the faith you left, what remains of you? Jerry never liked rhyming much, 
but I cried all the same. But the crowd didn't care, because Jerry did the whole thing floating three feet off the ground. It was the strangest thing. They were quiet during the show, not a peep, hanging on every word. But the moment that kid stopped singing, they let him have it. The booze came. They threw shit at him. And just like before, Jerry began sinking towards the ground. But then something caught his eye, and he rose back up. I followed his line of sight and saw Georgia standing in the back of the room, clapping her ass off. Jerry stayed afloat, and I never saw him touch ground again. Well, except for that one time. He bobbed off stage, his guitar hanging low off his back, accepting congratulations from several new young fans and ignoring the contempt from the rest. There had been a shift, and everyone felt it. But the old guard, well, they didn't like it. They didn't want to accept this new generation with their powers and their confidence. I got petitions from several enraged audience members swearing that if I didn't kick these new kids off the stage, they wouldn't come back. I considered it. Personally, I agreed with them. But it wasn't my call. Because the biggest champion of this new wave was the best of the old. Georgia absolutely loved Jerry's music and would sing it constantly in her own sets, giving it a bluesy soul that Jerry could never have achieved on his own. In fact, it was Georgia's renditions of Jerry's songs that pushed both of them to new heights. Their duo album, Because I Knew Her, is still the highest-selling album of both of their careers. We were backed up for months trying to make enough of those records. It was the first mega splash of the post-B-Day world, and it went to the two best artists we had. And Jerry, I mean, Jerry followed Georgia around like a puppy. Wherever she went inside Crossroads, Jerry would be floating just behind her. He would write songs just for her, and she would perform them to rapturous applause. Applause that Jerry never seemed to get. They loved his music, but only when Georgia was singing it. He was too aloof, literally. The quirky genius who never seemed human enough, where Georgia, Georgia was all too human. Or at least, that was the belief. But in reality, it was the exact opposite. Georgia never revealed anything about herself. We didn't even know if Georgia was her real name. And as far as she was concerned, we did not exist outside of Crossroads. Jerry was the exact opposite. His songs were so personal, so intimate. He laid his life bare, revealing himself in ways that would be uncomfortable if it wasn't through song. I believe that if you listen to Jeremiah Riles' full catalog, you would know the man better than you know your wife. Jerry wanted people to know him. He craved that connection. For I don't think anyone ever really knew Georgia. She never let anyone that close. And the only one who could see it was Jerry. And he resented her for it. He was sharing so much. But the audience loved the woman who shared nothing at all. He created, and Georgia just sang. It went like that for about a year. Jeremiah writing songs you never thought could exist. Performing them for an audience who hated what he stood for. Or floated for, I guess. Then Georgia would sing the same song the next night and be showered with praise. It got to the kid. After one real ugly set, he broke. 
and he took it all out on Georgia, screaming at her in the middle of crossroads, calling her a phony and a thief. Tears were streaming down his face. It was the most emotional I've ever seen him. But Georgia just stood there, stiff and rigid. I think it was the only time they both revealed who they truly were. Him, the sensitive, hurt boy. Her, the wall. I don't remember how the fight ended, but I remember what it cost us. The two best artists I had ever seen never spoke to each other again. Jerry stopped writing songs for her, and Georgia went back to the oldies. Together, they sold more records than anyone since B-Day. They saved music, but without the other, they seemed reduced somehow. But Crossroads went on. It always does. Jerry and Georgia performed on different nights, the bar packed with their disciples, hanging off every word. I never saw them in the same room again. It was a damn shame. And then, one night, some years later, Georgia missed her set. And Georgia never missed her set. For eight years, through the apocalypse and the rise, Georgia showed up every night she was scheduled and sang. I didn't know much about her, but I knew that singing on that stage was the most important thing in her life, and she had to be dead or dying to miss it. I asked around, but no one had seen her. No one even knew where to look. No one knew her. She didn't show up the next night, or the next. We all knew what it meant. People disappeared without a trace all the time in those days, and we never held out hope to see them again. But Georgia was different. She had to be. I never filled her spot on the schedule, and no one would take it. There was just a half an hour of silence at the end of the night where we would wait, desperately craning our necks in hopes to be the first to see her come back. But she never did. A month passed, and I still hadn't filled her spot. Some performers even asked if they could go up in her place, but I stared them down. The spot would remain open until Georgia came back for it. I was prepared to wait forever. But music, well, music waits for no man. Even one hurting as bad as me. It was Sunday night, two months since the last sighting of Georgia. The show had gone on as normal. Manfred made us laugh. Rosalind made us cry. Doris made us think. But then Georgia's spot came up, and the bar quieted. They knew what came next, and I could feel their eyes on me, asking how long I was willing to deny the obvious. I ignored them. But then a murmur broke out amongst the crowd as the door swung open, and a figure floated in. Jeremiah moved over the heads of the audience and up onto the stage, his guitar hanging low off his back. I moved to grab him off stage like I had so many years before, but then Jeremiah did something that stopped me in my tracks. He stood up. First one leg dropped, then the other. His feet hung there an inch off the ground. Then gravity returned to him. His back hunched over, his hair fell across his face, and he looked like the scared little boy Georgia had taken under her wing all those years ago. 
He swallowed and looked out across the bar. There were tears in his eyes. He leaned into the microphone and asked me to come up on stage. All eyes turned to me. In a trance, I moved to him, not sure how hard I was going to hit him when I got there. I stepped up on stage and towered over Jeremiah. The kid was actually quite small when he wasn't floating over your head. He gestured for me to sit. I looked out into the audience, their faces obscured by the lights. So much had changed. We used to play by candlelight. I sat to keep from falling. Jeremiah turned back to the crowd, raised his guitar, and began to play. I was so lost in my own thoughts that it took me till the chorus to realize what he was playing. George on my mind. I turned in my stool and found the old stained keys of my piano waiting. I remembered that first night. Remembered her voice singing from outside. It had been so long and it all felt empty without her. But maybe if I tried, maybe just one note, it was worth it just to try. I began to play and I didn't stop. Tears fell past my hands to splatter on the keys. When the chorus came back around, the whole bar joined in. We sang together, sang for each other, sang for Georgia, sang our pain into the world so we didn't have to deal with it alone. Then the song ended. I sat on that stool, staring at the keys until everyone went home, vanishing into the darkness of a world that had nothing to do with me. The last to leave was Jerry, walking out on his own two feet. When I finally looked up, the bar was empty. But that was all right. I knew it would be full the following evening. It always was. This has been a Fool's Gallery production of The Phone Booth. Crossroads Part 2 was written and directed by Keenan Ellis. Join us next week for Episode 3, Safe Space.